Before this show starts, we have a quick favor to our listeners. We've got a survey for you. It's for listeners of The Interchange and of The Energy Gang. It is in the show notes, and it's just going to take you a few minutes. Uh, It's totally anonymous, unless, of course, you want to win swag for The Interchange or Energy Gang. Then you can give us your email. But otherwise, it's anonymous, and uh, it helps us learn more about who our audience is, where they come from in the industry or outside the industry, and, and what their likes are, so we can serve up more relevant content. And to be totally transparent, it helps us find the right advertisers, too, for the show, so that those advertisers are like giving you stuff that is directly interesting and relevant to your life and your business. So pick up the device you're using right now to listen to this podcast. Tap that link right there in the show notes and fill out our survey. Thank you so much. And thanks to our sponsors. Uh, Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation, energy management, and automation. There are the three Ds of uh, the energy transition you might have heard of, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitalization, and they are reshaping the energy landscape. Schneider Electric is harnessing all of them and pioneering solutions like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. You can find out more at schneider-electric.us slash microgrid, and if it's easier for you, we've got a link in the show notes. The interchange is also brought to you by PG&E. 39% of California's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. Transportation emissions are really big now. They're outpacing electric sector emissions. And did you know that most medium and heavy-duty trucks spend about one-third of their time idling and thus polluting? Well, not anymore if you go electric. EVs have no tailpipe emissions in idle. And if you're a PG&E customer, you can take advantage of limited-time incentives with their EV fleet program. Make the smart choice by taking your fleet electric. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more. Head on over to pge.com slash gtm. That's pge.com slash gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Shail Khan is my co-host. He's out there in Berkeley, California. He is managing director at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Good morning, Shale. Good morning, Stephen. After all those shutoffs last week in Northern California, I presume the power is on because you're recording with us. The power is back on, thankfully. <laughs> did, 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 you, did you lose power? I didn't. So, uh, you know, basically what happened is we got shutoffs almost kind of surrounding San Francisco, but with a band around San Francisco that still had power. So I work in San Francisco. I live in Berkeley in the part of Berkeley that's sort of closer to the Bay. So I was within the band personally, but know lots of folks who live just a little bit further out or in the hills or up north and, you know, they all lost power. Well, this week we are not talking about power shutoffs. We are revisiting the world of venture capital. There's this quote from Peter Thiel from many years back that gets thrown around a lot. And he he said, we wanted flying cars, but we got 140 characters. And it's a really compelling quote that people reference a lot because it succinctly illustrates the limits of venture capital. And it feels more relevant than ever today. There are so many venture dollars in Silicon Valley going to companies that are doing everything on demand and startups making consumer tech experiences more addictive. Meanwhile, America is in desperate need of infrastructure innovation, the tough stuff. The first clean tech bubble showed the limits of VC in backing tough capital-intensive tech. And we want to know, can venture capital step up to the big challenges of our day? 
Our guest, Katie Ray, believes that sincerely. She doesn't just believe it, she's doing it. Katie is the CEO and managing partner at The Engine, a venture capital firm based in Cambridge, Mass., that was uh, spun out of MIT. And uh, it is uh, uh, an investment firm that invests in what they call tough tech. Katie joins us from The Engine offices. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. So there's nowhere else to start. What is tough tech? Awesome question. We talk about it all day long. We think it is some of the most exciting areas to invest into in technology today. These are technologies that come out of scientific breakthroughs and a combination of frontier technology development and leadership. They're things that will endure and really work on and solve what we think of as the world's most urgent problems. There are things in clean tech, there are things in disease eradication, and they are the very infrastructure that we need to thrive as a society and a world into the future. Now, I want to get deeper into the the companies and sectors you're targeting. And for the purposes of our show, we're obviously talking more about clean energy technologies and decarbonization. But let's just talk first about the structure of venture capital in general. What has VC done effectively And what are its limitations when it comes to difficult sectors? So, I mean, that is a wonderful question and obviously quite complicated answer. So, but let's let's start at a really high level. I think typically and in many industries, venture capital can take things from the idea stage all the way through to a massively scaled, impactful company. I mean, we see that, we've proven that in two dominant sectors already. One is software, which I think is quite obvious, and one is pharmaceuticals. Um, Pharmaceuticals probably have a better corollary to clean tech than software. You know, they fall into the tough tech zone, right? Many years of R&D, Often you need some kind of breakthrough scientifically or in engineering, but but there are limitations. And we saw that in the clean tech 1.0 bubble, that if it takes too long to get things into market, you have venture capital investor fatigue. It's not actually the scale of dollars. It's how quickly can you get to market? And so that's the piece where I think there's a real limitation. Um, that we have to figure out. And and I bring up kind of biotech and the pharmaceutical industry because we have cracked the code there on the capital stack. People are patient to get these kinds of drugs into market. Many times they take 10, 15, 20 years to get to market. And we are patient enough for that because we understand the length of time And we know that if we take certain technical risk out of those ventures, that there there will be value inflection points in which investors can get paid back for those, right? You see many early IPOs, et cetera, because we have a way of evaluating the risk to market. What's happening in my mind in these other tough tech areas, clean tech being one of them, 
is we don't have proper gates for that. So we don't know how to evaluate that risk and invest into it. Just to probe on that a little bit, I don't think we want to spend too much time rehashing the cleantech 1.0 bubble. But I, I think it is often stated that one of the challenges that we learned about venture capital in that sector as a result was this timeline mismatch that you're describing. But I also wonder if you actually look at what happened in that cleantech 1.0 period. I mean, a lot of the venture capital dollars that were flowed into the sector and then were ultimately lost were came in sort of two sectors, right? One was thin film solar and one was biofuels. And, and I would say, I guess that in both of those cases, the technologies that were being invested in did make it to market. It wasn't exactly a timeline problem, right? Take thin film solar as an example. All these companies, Solyndra and Mia Soleil and all the other ones that received a lot of funding, I mean, they were commercialized and they were producing at some scale, perhaps not the scale they wanted to be at. Um, but then it turned out that there was a whole other set of problems with them, that what we thought were technological breakthroughs you know, weren't as impressive in the face of competition from commoditized Chinese crystalline silicon modules, right? And so I guess one of the the things that I wonder about is, is are we taking the right lessons from that first bubble? Is it all about the timeline or is it about, we need to be pretty hard nosed about determining by the time these things do get to market, what is their competitive landscape going to look like? And is it true that what looks like a technology breakthrough today is still going to look like a technology breakthrough at that point in time? It's a great question. And I, I agree with you that we've learned other lessons besides the timeline mismatch. We've learned that really being specific and conservative on kind of the techno-economic metrics you have to hit to be adoptable, that you have to be hitting the right price points, absolutely critical to any new technology. You do already play in an energy market. And then the second piece that I think certainly we and everybody else that I know investing into the sector thinks about that we partner with is what is is this true breakthrough technology and can it be built in the way the team believes it can and that takes pretty deep evaluation and then a lot of help along the way to make sure it's it's going well before you continue to invest and so you know if you look at my friends over at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, they look at very closely at that. And I think most people investing at scale in this pay really close attention to those other two pieces as well. And there's another layer, which is called regulation and, and government, right? Which is you cannot ignore the role of regulation and government in all of these, and you do at your own peril. And so you have to be really pushing on all those different fronts in order to bring these next-gen clean tech companies or tough tech companies to bear to market. Shale, I just want to touch briefly on this point one more time. So uh, Katie just outlined the way that they evaluate companies and thinking about the long-term opportunity and think about the potential barriers when the technology is commercialized. How does that differ from the way a firm like Energy Impact Partners thinks about investing in companies at a much different stage and different types of companies. Yeah, I mean, I think we look, uh, on the outside, we look a lot more sort of like traditional venture capital. We're more sectorally focused than most, right? We specialize in energy and we have, we work with all these utilities. But 
uh, you know, we're generally investing in companies and technologies that are already commercialized or, you know, at the, at the precipice at the earliest. So we, we have a shorter time horizon, um, I think in terms of how we're thinking about, you know, these companies scaling and what's ultimately going to happen with them. Um, and so we, we face some of the same questions, but probably, a an easier version of them, um, because we're not generally placing a bet on, for example, a fusion company where the question is, you know, if they make it to market, right, where we would invest at the point where they've already made it to market and we can help them grow. So it's just a different set of questions. Yeah. I mean, the engine, you know, we, when we set up the engine, the thesis was there are, you know, there are certain gaps in the market for taking these breakthrough tech frontier breakthrough technologies to market and one of the first ones is the what I'll call the technical risk stage and most venture capital will not invest into that stage there are a few of us that do and when we win in that we reap huge rewards from it but you have to be comfortable with that stage. So many of the things we invest into are to take out some of those fundamental technological risks. We, we believe we're beyond quote unquote scientific risk, but we're certainly in deep engineering risk. But if you take that out and fund that stage, it's often you know kind of one to four years of that. Then you open up a lot of venture capital dollars because you're into then, you often have product market fit. You can show definitively that it can scale or work at the right economic um, metrics for bringing to market. We also believe in tough tech that you have to build um, the capital stack so that at each time period when companies need capital, you are matching them to the right risk profile. And, you know, as I said to you before, pharma has a very organized capital stack, but clean tech does not. And I think the organization of that um, and the understanding of where different players are and how they come into the capital stack will allow these transformative technologies to get to market. And, um, and then the second piece that these types of companies need, and the reason it's been hard to get them out of the labs, is there's both infrastructure and network that are also lacking. So literally spaces to build companies like this, right? They're all convergence technologies. They all have software. That's easy. But they often have wet labs, and they need places to build things. Um, of substance and often of various different chemical or biological makeups. And so you need very specialized spaces to build companies like this uh, in, in the energy sector and all of the other sectors of tough tech. I'm curious whether as you've identified the gap that you guys are are trying to fill with this cluster, whether you've identified specific technologies or companies that you think 
the world missed out on as a result of this gap? Like, are there things that have existed in the lab that nobody took out of the lab because there wasn't early stage funding or were there early stage companies that just weren't able to attract capital, but for which the technology was actually really promising? Like, what are we missing in the world as a result of this gap? Well, I mean, this is what I spend my day on and which is why, you know, mostly we write first checks into companies. But we also look at things that have languished because there wasn't the right kind of funding for them. And we often try to reinvigorate those companies, usually with a set of partners, capital partners, that also see the promise of them. You know, so uh, I'll just give an example. Boston Metal, incredible company. They have been at this uh, for six years, trying to basically decarbonize steel production and other metal production. And uh, a group came together to back that company. They have now blossomed. They've raised 25 million bucks. They have built out their team and they are well on their way to developing a product that could come to market with their their first metal and then you know the program to create steel as well and so that, that's you know when i look at that and and those of us investing into things like this look at it you know it it was for lack of capital that they couldn't have gone faster but we definitely want to see them become a great company so we're not worried that it's taken that amount of time. We think it is worth it to go in there and invest into things like that. There's this meme, right? When when there's so much capital flowing to things that look capital light or easy to do, like software companies, you know, our young generation hears the message that that's what they should be devoting their life to because it's easier. We just are trying to say, hey, wait a second, people that, you know, the incredible people coming out of our universities that want to be entrepreneurs. We want to be kind of that place where they come and tell us their most incredible ideas for making an impact in the world. And we say to them, great, jump in with two feet, we're here, we will help you, you know, create the right capital partners to take this all the way to market. And, and you know, I, I'm not dissing software. Software is a part of every single company we do, but often the problems that we're working on in clean tech, sometimes they are pure software solutions, but more often than not, they're involving innovation that are coming out of the physical sciences as well and, and mechanical sciences, mechanical engineering as well. And so we want to inspire this group of young people to go after decarbonizing cement, you know, decarbonizing the entire built environment. You know, how do you do climate change mitigation, whether that's in healthcare or whether it's, you know, in in the kinds of infrastructure that we need to put around cities or transportation. You seem like an optimist. <laughs> I think you have to be in this job. But I wonder if you get down seeing some of the smartest minds of our generation going to companies that are 
you know, just trying to get consumers to spend more, or they're developing incremental improvements in software. Some of the most sophisticated mathematical minds and engineering minds that are just going to different variations of consumer applications rather than trying to solve bigger challenges. You know, sure, once in a while. Uh, but, you know, I invite you to come to Cambridge. I, I am literally inspired every day by the people that walk through the door or when I walk the halls of MIT or Harvard or the other universities here, I think we have an incredible generation of people coming out of these undergrad and PhD programs that really see that their life's mission is impact, right? And uh, so I am I am buoyed by that every single day. And my hope is that with people that are so inspirational, that they will attract those others that that aren't working in these important areas to them as they grow important companies. And we already see it happening. We see it, people moving from things that they are not inspired to work on into these companies. It is, it is an incredible tool for recruiting the best and brightest is to be on a mission and to be creating important companies. A quick interlude here to talk about our sponsors who are dealing with tough tech in different ways. We are supported by Schneider Electric. Today, we live in a world where the entire power ecosystem is being upended, disrupted by global technology trends like digitalization, combined with locally-based movements for more distributed, clean energy. And as part of that evolution, Schneider Electric helps companies, communities, and governments embrace microgrids to enable a more resilient, reliable, and sustainable future. In Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, county officials launched an aggressive effort to improve resilience at its expansive government facilities after devastating storms in 2012. And as part of a wide-ranging solution completed in 2018, the county worked with Schneider Electric to install two microgrids at critical government facilities that incorporate renewables, EV charging, and combined heat and power with no money up front. Across North America, Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrids. To learn more about their microgrid-as-a-service funding model, say hello to Schneider at the 2019 Verge Conference on October 22nd through 24th. Or visit them via the link in the show notes of this podcast. We are also brought to you by PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty vehicles play a big role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. And with over 70 different models of zero-emission vans, trucks, and buses already commercially available from several manufacturers, now is the time to take your commercial fleet electric. So where to begin? Well, you can begin with PG&E's free guidebook on fleet electrification and infrastructure if you download that, you'll get uh, all the information you need to start transitioning your fleet to electric, including advice on charger selection, site planning, additional funding opportunities, and much more. Download your free copy of the guidebook today, no strings attached, or forms to fill at pge.com slash gtmev, or just click that little link there in the show notes and you will get your report to help you on your way to electrify. I want to go back to some of the companies that you are backing. You talked about Boston Metal, uh, low CO2 steel production. You mentioned Form Energy, uh, long-duration storage. And then you mentioned Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Uh, this is a company that, if I'm not mistaken, has been 
working on this fusion system for, I think, decades. People involved in the company have been working on this problem for a long time. And they're, I think they're right now working on this superconducting magnet. They plan to potentially have a, a, a demonstration system in the next few years. But when you look at this, this is not a company that was recently formed. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a it's a technology that has been in development for many decades. And when you look at that as a venture capitalist, like this is a sector, nuclear in particular, is a sector that almost nobody wants to touch, and it's governments that are doing the financial backing, not necessarily venture investors. So as you look at that particularly difficult technology fusion and just nuclear in general. How do you evaluate the risk of that particular sector? So if you um, take a step back, and yes, uh, almost all of the important inventions that we've had in the last 100 years are the result of massive government backing of R&D at our universities or national labs. Just period, end of story. That is no different with fusion. The, the Plasma Center at MIT has had backing from the U.S. government for 50 or 60 years. And what they've been working on is to get to net positive energy, right? And on these tokamak systems that are very well understood at this point, I think 117 of them have been built in the world to date. Um, MIT's tokamak is at the cutting edge of that. So over at MIT, you have the scientists and engineers that have come together to really develop this industry. Not alone, there are other universities that do it as well, but a particularly important group there. And they are just, we're just at, in the research stages at the cusp of net positive energy. And so when you look at, at investing in that in the private sector, right, beyond government funding, what you have to say to yourself is, do we believe we have a path to net positive energy so that we can provide this infinite carbon-free power to the grid, right? Because if you can do that, I th we believe the economic models play out very nicely for a company like that. Before you can invest, and this is the work that we did with Commonwealth Fusion along with other investors, is to look at their plan to get all the way to market, which by the way is a 12 to 15 year plan, which is why you need a fund that is structured like us to do it, right? So an 18 year fund. Um, but I think what we saw and, and that they have proven, certainly theoretically, is that with this material change that they've made in creating the magnets, that we believe there will be net positive energy. But you can chunk out that risk, right? So the first risk is, is to develop the first magnet. The second risk is to develop the the first tokamak and then you get into your first pilot plant right so you don't you don't have to put all the money up front you can continue to push into that risk and that's how all venture capital works anyway so it is really no different but in this case i think 
the interesting parts, and we touched on this before, is that you have to push on all of these fronts because even the word fusion can be scary to people, despite the fact that from a scientific point of view, fusion is very, very safe, right? You attach nuclear to that and it becomes a scary word. We're talking about fusion here, and that is a very safe technology that we believe can be put almost anywhere in the world and be safe. And yes, it is harder than doing a consumer software play, but the moat that you'll build around a company like that and the economic returns, if you're right, are substantial and will pay back the risk you have taken. And so that's the bet we make. I'm curious, another area of sort of frontier innovation uh, in the decarbonization world is around carbon capture and utilization. And I think the sort of even more frontier world of direct air capture, just pulling CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. Uh, it seems like the kind of space that the engine would be well suited to, given that these are all tough tech problems and often face long time horizons for commercialization, at least at scale. Um, have you looked at that space? What do you think about it? We've looked at that space extensively, and we haven't found a team that we're going to back in that space yet, but we will continue to hunt there. Uh, we think there's a lot of different approaches you know, uh, for doing carbon capture and um, or direct CO2 capture. So we just continue to explore. You know, just let me let me point out some other areas that we're really interested in. So if you look at our industrial base and how much carbon is generated from many of our industrial processes, whether it's pulp and paper or creating chemicals, we look at companies that decarbonize those as well. So a couple I'll just point out via separations is doing instead of um, distillation, doing industrial separation processes, which consumes about 15% of the US um, uh, energy consumption are four processes like this. And so this is a membrane technology that we think is extremely exciting. And uh, they are going to their first pilot customers uh, early next year. So that is thrilling. And then another one that we just backed called Syzygy is essentially using photocatalysis for chemical creation, and which also has a major carbon footprint. So those are the areas that we have found companies that we can clearly back that actually can get to market fairly quickly and then can scale worldwide and have a huge impact on the world's carbon footprint. You mentioned that the engine is an 18-year fund. For those who are not super deeply steeped in the world of venture capital, you know, so the traditional venture capital fund has a, you know, three to five year investing period and a 10 year hold period. So it'd be a 10 year fund. So yours is almost twice that. Um, I guess, first of all, why 18? That seems very specific. Uh, and second, does it mean that you need 
correspondingly higher returns because the time value of money means that, you know, an investor who invests in the fund is going to have their money sitting there for a longer period of time. And so you have to be making bets that will pay off even greater um, if they succeed because the the money's locked up longer? So, I mean, the easy answer to that is yes, we have to be making bets on companies that we believe will be enormous markets and uh, and that they will be industry-defining companies and that they'll stick it out to do, you know, to do that. Uh, uh, just a minor point. It does not mean that every company we invest into has to take 18 years. Like, we don't require that. <laughs> it, but it allows us the ability to bet on companies that we think will take longer to get to market before they are able to do an IPO, right? So that they have some R&D or technical barriers that um, mean that it will take them longer to get there. So we wanted the flexibility to do that. It, there's there is no magic in 18 years. We it actually very on a finer point. It's a 12 year fund with two three year extensions, and so it gives us the flexibility to take more time very easily and to think with that longer term mindset. Certainly, you know many of our other friends in venture. You might have a 10 year time timeline. But you are thinking you have to get to IPO within seven years, right? That is substantially shorter than we have to think, which allows us to go into things like fusion or things that have regulatory hurdles, um, et cetera, that we think are really exciting. And if you look at the numbers on the back end, they often pay out really, really well when you win. So we don't think you have to sacrifice financial returns to do these things, but you must have a longer time horizon in order to make these kind of substantial bets. Some days I'm optimistic. Some days I'm a bit cynical. I wonder, do you think that I'm going to tap into a theme that we often grapple with on this show? Do you think that America can still do big things? What a great question. There is zero doubt in my mind. If you look around the world at innovation that is happening, America has some of the very, very best centers of excellence. You know, I happen to live in one, which is why I love Boston and and the kind of people that are here and the problems that they're tackling. But I think there is deep ambition I think people are earnest about putting their life's work into things that matter. And I think we are a place, a country that embraces entrepreneurship and scale. So you put those things together. Um, you know, I think the one piece that we've got to keep doing is putting our shoulder into fu the government funding much of the early research. And that means backing our labs and universities and increasing the dollars that go there. That is the lifeblood of our economy and the next generation of science and innovation. And so I think we absolutely have all the other ingredients and a lot of government funding, but we've got to keep up the pace there or else we will fall behind the world. 
So you've got this summit coming up next week, the Tough Tech Summit. I'm curious, you know, you're thinking on this long time horizon, but th- clearly there are yearly changes, developments with companies, developments in the market. What's an important thing that happened within the last year since the last summit that you think is worth noting? So I think a few things. One is the growth of our companies has been tremendous. Almost all of the companies that we backed in the first year have raised their next round. They're growing not only their teams, but they are proving out their engineering and they are heading toward market, right? And so that is exciting. That means lots of different spaces have to get built out. We have just announced that we're going to build a substantial hub in the center of Kendall Square um, for tough tech. So we're building out 200,000 square feet uh, with MIT to serve as an anch- one of the anchors in this community for tough tech. And that we think is super exciting. We could not have done that without proving out that these kinds of companies can break out of the lab, attract capital, and you know, start to get some commercial traction. And so that's, that is really, really exciting. And then the other thing is, I think the strength of the bonds of the ecosystem around here are exciting. And, you know, as I said, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, uh, my, our friends at Greentown Labs are growing, Lab Central, uh, Cyclotron Road is expanding here and calling it Activate to push into kind of early scientific potential founders. We just are seeing people really band together as a community to back these types of ideas and founders and companies. And I think you're just going to see the growth explode in this area. You know, we saw it from last year to this year, and this year to next year is going to be even more exciting. And we're also seeing that people later in the capital stack, the people who, you know, back the B, C, D, E, F rounds and project finance are starting to really push down into these companies, which I think will open up many different ways that they can scale around the world. Indeed, it does feel like there's a significant change happening in this sector. Well, Katie Ray is the CEO and managing partner at The Engine. She joined us from their offices there in Cambridge. Katie, thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Shale, are you now motivated to march up to your utility investment uh, limited partners and and demand that they start investing in like low CO2 steel production and fusion energy research? Yep, straight to fusion. That's all (laughs) we're going to do from now on. I'm into it. (laughs) That is Shale Khan. He's my co-host. We're signing off for now. Before you move on to the next podcast or task at hand, uh, can you do us a favor and take the survey linked in our show notes? It's a huge help, and you'll potentially win some swag, too. If you get value out of this show, send it to someone else in your life who would get value as well. You can holler at us. We are The Interchange on social media. Shale is there. I am there. And perhaps we'll uh, send uh, a retweet or echo your sentiment uh, right there in the energy community. The Interchange is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. We are co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.